Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is an exciting one. I'm constantly learning about great-sounding old Hollywood and international cinema from this guy. He's the number one Pedro Maldivar fan and a host for it, Pod to Be You, Queer and Now, and M. Night Frights. Please welcome Manish Mathur. How's it going, dude? Doing really well over here, too. Uh, like I said, you are a, a font of knowledge for me to constantly be learning about some some really great classics, so I'm really stoked to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, and that's so kind. I learned so much from your podcast, so it's uh, oh, wow. I'm really excited well, to be here. <laughs> mutual admiration society, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? Yeah, actually, I wasn't really into horror when I was little. Or you know, even in high school, I think in college I got into Hitchcock, and so I watched stuff like Psycho and, and The Birds and, and and Frenzy. And it really wasn't until like to that 2015 that I got into horror. Because what happened is that I started writing for this website called Horror Film Central, and somehow they hired me to write <laughs> horror movie reviews for them. And I think I might have probably lied about how much I liked horror movies. Just I wanted to. <laughs> work for them uh so i was i was there for about a year and they would have me go out and watch horror movies for them every week or review older ones if there wasn't anything so i did that and it was certainly a lot of fun so that's why i got into it and uh yeah it's so i i you know i won't say that i'm a major horror fan i mean i do enjoy the movies a lot but i don't have shutter i'm not seeking out every little thing <laughs> But, you know, when there's something really kind of cool and interesting out, I'll definitely go check it out. Yeah. I think that this is a really great perspective to bring onto the show because so frequently we're talking to people who have tr- like really immersed themselves in horror. And to me, a big part of what makes something the best is its accessibility. The kind of thing that, you know, crosses over. Yeah. That is, that's a huge component of what might make something the best to me. And hearing someone who is interested in horror, who likes it, but doesn't see every single movie that comes out, hearing what they view as the best and what sticks out to them is hugely important, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think what I like about horror is kind of what I like about musicals and melodrama and film noir, and that it's very classically cinematic. It depends a lot on the camera, the mise-en-scene, the editing, the music the performances, all those things have to be firing on all cylinders for it to be effective. Yeah. And to me, that's what really stands out for yeah. the genre. And I think that's why I like musicals, that you need everything to be working together. And it's an experience you can really only have in a movie. Yeah. I and mean, I guess on, on TV too, whatever. But like, <laughs> in a movie for sure, I know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's so inherently cinematic. Definitely. Now, we're not talking about another M. Night movie today, but I would be totally remiss if I did not chat with you about his work. So I'm curious to hear about your enjoyment about his work specifically, what draws you to him enough to make a, a whole pod about his filmography, uh, and what's the very best M. Night movie ever made? Well, yeah, I, I love M. Night. Part of that is that he's like the most famous South Asian filmmaker out there, at least that's working in Hollywood, I mean. Mm -hmm. I just like, I really admire him because he really created this career out of, out of nothing. Yeah. He has no contacts in the industry. He just, he just made it on his own. And not only that, but he's become a household name. He's created really classic, iconic movies that really have resonated to this day. 
I just listened to your episode on the village, and it was really, really fun to listen to that and to you know hear that appreciation. So for me, I, I think he's he's one of those guys that really studied you know the Spielbergs and the Hitchcock and the Kubricks, and he has that classical film knowledge, but he kind of makes it his own weird, crazy thing. And he's one of the few filmmakers that is truly original and truly beholden to his own vision. I admire him a lot because he, especially in the last you know decade or so, has been self-funding his own movies. And to me, yeah. that is you know for him to take that kind of chance on himself and to say, well, look, this is this is my vision, and I I want to make sure that I have complete control over it. So I'm just going to put in all the funding myself and kind of use funds from previous movies to make new ones. And you know, he's out of the Hollywood scene. He lives in Philadelphia. You know, like you know, he's your hometown hero. Hell yeah. You know? <laughs> There's just a lot to admire. And, you know, he had his whole decade where he was kind of not really making movies that anyone really liked. But to see him bounce back from that, you know, with the Blumhouse people. So, you know, I I love The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and, and Split. But I think for me, my favorite is The Visit. Wow. I don't know. It's just, that's his comeback movie. That's, you know, it's just kind of like this like weird 90 minute like horror comedy fake documentary with like <laughs> these two kind of cute but annoying kids and these like terrifying grandparents and Catherine Hahn doing her, doing some amazing work in like eight scenes. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think The Sixth Sense is probably still his masterpiece. I mean, I'm a big fan of Old as well. Yeah. I think Old is really just like stunning to look i mean he really pushes his filmmaking so forward with that movie oh yeah um but uh, yeah i have a soft spot for the visit you know i I think it's a it's a really it's really cute movie in this like kind of like weird funny way uh really scary i think and really emotional too so yeah i'm gonna put out a a flyer for for the visit um (laughs) just because I, i feel like people don't talk about it enough yeah, it definitely feels like a watershed moment in his career, you yeah. know, the sort of revival of M. Night where people got back on his side, and I think that that's great. I'm glad that people are starting to come back on his side because I also really admire M. Night. I think the self-funding thing is really fantastic, but particularly what I admire about him is the way he really puts himself into the work. Yeah, Every single movie feels like it could not have come from anybody else. I think that he really wears his heart on his sleeve. I think that he is a huge romantic. You know, you see it time and time again in his movies. Yeah. And I think that the fact that he didn't let that vision and that passion get beat out of him, (laughs) you know, with all of, like you said, basically like a decade where everybody was just shitting on his work. It's incredible to me that he kept his head up that he he believed in himself and what he was doing in such a great way and he should have and i like even a lot of the ones that people don't like uh i watched lady in the water and had a wonderful time with it so (laughs) there you go uh m night fans unite we're here yeah yeah i mean yeah he's he just seems like a genuinely good guy you know there aren't aren't that many directors out there that you know are so visionary and and so specific that actually seem like nice people yeah and you know i don't you know throughout the whole like me too thing a couple years ago i was always kind of afraid that someone would kind of bring a story about M. Night being like toxic on set or something. I have not heard anything like that. So all around seems like a nice guy. My buddy Craig has, has worked on a few of his, his shoots here in Philadelphia and has had nothing but glowing things to say about him. So yeah, uh, really great to hear. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. 
returning to horror at large, is there a favorite subgenre, something that does tend to stick out at you as something that you tend to go back to time and time again as as uh, a more likely favorite? Yeah, in terms of subgenre, I really love a gothic ghost story, as evidenced by the movie <laughs> that I picked. You know, get me like a frail woman running around a big house, you know, with like ghosts, you know, ghosts <laughs> kind of running around or some kind of supernatural thing. I, I love that, you know, especially when there's really good sound design there. Crucial. Yeah, I, I really, I really like that. Um, I, I, I do enjoy a slasher movie, like the one that just came out, X, I thought was quite fantastic. Yeah, very fun. But I, I, I tend to be more into the whole like psychological stuff. Yeah. You know, like a lot of the suggestions that I sent to you, like Eyes Wide Shut, Rosemary's Baby, you know, Carrie, I think it's more like, I like that more. I think there's more power to like a really intense slow build, you know, like a movie like Hereditary. Yeah, watching someone degrade. Yeah, yeah, which is just like, to me, that's scarier than seeing some guy in a mask. <laughs> I mean, you know, Hall- you know, Halloween, you know, Elm Street, I, I, li- I enjoy those, but I, I really like that, like, slow build, yeah, like, that deterioration, and, like, especially, my problem with jump scares is not so much inherently, but just the, like, having that build up, then, like, release catharsis, it kind of, you know, whenever you watch a movie with a lot of jump scares with an audience, like, there's always that laugh after the jump scare <laughs> happens, and, like, it doesn't really stick with you then, but, like, to me, like, having that really intense, like, slow build, I'd, like, to me, that unsettles me more. And, like, I'll have more nightmares about that. Definitely. Be, like, even a movie that's, like, not really explicitly a horror movie, that has that kind of, like, like um, atmospheric dread, to me, that's, like, more scary than, you know, even, like, monsters or, you know. A subgenre that I'm kind of drawn to but terrified of is, like, demonic possession type movies. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I, I enjoy those, but they scare me to no end. Wow. Like, Hereditary, I, I guess. I was thinking about Hereditary. I mean, I, I watched Hereditary recently because it reminded me a lot of The Innocence. Yeah, I see that a lot, for sure. So it was kind of on my mind. To me, that's, like, the scariest movie because, like, <laughs> it's the slow build and it's a demon movie. Definitely, yeah. And and uh, there's certainly a lot of that in today's movie, which is yeah. The Innocents from 1961. Really fantastic. Based on The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, a novella with 27 TV and screen adaptations. <laughs> Although only 12 are a direct adaptation, the rest are just inspired by. Only 12, I say, in big air quotes. <laughs> but this is the best of them all. Kick rocks, Bly Manor. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed Bly Manor a lot, but it's, I mean, it's it's a, it's a whole, different, whole different thing. Definitely. <laughs> now, The Turning of the Screw had been adapted by William Archibald into a stage play, and he turned that into the screenplay as well. But when Jack Clayton signed on to direct, fresh off the hit film Room at the Top, He didn't like Archibald's take on the supernatural events in the movie being real because he was smitten with an article he read from the 30s declaring the visions of the governess to be born of sexual frustration. One funny line, speaking of that, is that someone was saying that the true measure of success for the turning of the screw is by counting the number of articles attempting to decipher which is the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So he brings in Truman Capote, who he'd met uh, while assisting John Huston on Beat the Devil, for which Truman was the writer. And together, they disregard the stage play, returning to the book and its ambiguity that it sort of has, and adding elements that muddy the water and create possible alternatives. And this is really where the movie shines, is this incredible ambiguity. Not only does it present, it needs to present two 
ideas that are clear and counter to each other, but they also both need to be plausible for it to be effective. And this movie does such a great job of presenting evidence in both camps that constantly have you second-guessing yourself, second-guessing what's happening on screen. It's so remarkable, done so incredibly well. Now, Capote at this point was indeed a successful writer with Breakfast at Tiffany's, among others, already under his belt, though his ascension would, of course, peak a few years later with the publishing of In Cold Blood in 1966. Interestingly, Breakfast at Tiffany's was adapted into the famous movie this very same year, 1961, though Capote was none too keen on the changes from the novella to the movie, but I digress. Deborah Kerr is our star of The Innocents, and man, what a star. She is so fantastic in this. Her physical performance carries the movie, really. She's just spectacular in this. Were you familiar with her, or are you like, have you seen a lot of her movies? I've seen The King and I, yeah. but that's it uh, before this. Yeah, when I saw this movie, I was a big fan of The King and I, as well as her movies like Black Narcissus. Oh, you know, I didn't even realize she's in that. I have seen Black yeah. Narcissus. Yeah, yeah. So she's. Uh, oh, and also um, Here to Eternity. Yeah, she's fabulous. Yeah. Really, really great performance from her. Yeah, and she was already, like we said, a pretty famous actress at the time. She had met Clayton while he was second assistant director on George Bernard Shaw's Major Barbara in 1940. This guy was really getting the band back together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she does such a great job of getting us on the side of Mrs. Giddens at first, and I, I personally totally get, like, swept up in her madness. Although she said that she asked Clayton if the ghosts are really there, and he told her, make up your own mind. <laughs> I think that's fun. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what she would think, uh, what she is. Uh, I mean, it seems to me like she thinks that they're real. I, but. I feel like she, she would almost have to, because I think as an actress, you would have to really put yourself in that mindset that they are real, because otherwise it, it's a, it'd almost be too, too winking. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. The costume department, I think, also does a really great job of sort of following along with her mental deterioration. Uh, She sort of becomes increasingly conservative, uh, more severe clothing and everything. Um, It's a really nice touch to the character. Yeah. And and she's on screen for 95 of the movie's 99 minutes. Not only that, but like in these intense close-ups, you know, that are very unforgiving, you know, and... you know, and she was, I think she was about 39, 40 when she made this. Right. But I, I watched this featurette on the Blu-ray about the cinematography of this movie and how they had to use CinemaScope because that was what the studio demanded for the, for the time. And right. how just like, that created this like weird, like bloating look for it. I mean, I don't know that much about cinematography, like on that technical level, but it created this like weird effect on everyone's faces and it adds to the unsettling unsettling nature of the film. But I could imagine if you're an actor being like, why do I look so bloated? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that cinemascope, you know, it's interesting because it was forced upon them, but Freddie Francis, uh, you know, he's the, the camera operator here. He's, he's the, the director of photography and he just knocks it out of the park. He was like, don't worry, Jack, I got this. And, what he does with that is so great. He makes really great use of uh, very deep focus is is really remarkable. So many fa- fantastic shots of someone like in the background watching someone in the foreground. And the cinemascope, because there's all this negative space on the sides, there's like kind of a, a darkness 
that feels like it's eating in on the edge of the scene almost at all times. That really does a great job of sort of lending to the atmosphere. That's especially true of the scenes with a lot of candlelight because the actors are kind of in this like circle of the candle and then there's like so much that's there's all that dark space and Mm -hmm. then you just don't know if you're seeing something or not kind of as you're saying like encroaching into the into the frame it's really scary yeah and freddie's work is incredibly varied you know he had done movies like cape fear and dune as well but the closest to his achievements here for me is the elephant man which similarly makes really great use of like the shadows and and the innocence really plays with shadows it does a great job of u- using the the depth of someone's face <laughs> to really conjure emotion uh you see the contours and everything in a really fantastic way The children are played by Pamela Franklin as Flora in her debut, and Martin Stevens, who is also in 1960s Village of the Damned, as Miles. They both do a really great job, too. You know, I am uh, famously pretty critical of child actors, (laughs) and uh, I think that these two do a really good job of kind of waffling between precocious, possessed person and, uh, and, you know, a cute little kid just having a fun time. Yeah, they're both very childlike, but very eerily adult-like. Especially Miles, like, his flirtatious demeanor is very unnerving. Definitely. (laughs) It feels very inappropriate and, like, sickening, almost. Yeah, yeah, it really adds a level of uncomfortableness to basically all of his interactions with uh, Miss Gibbons. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Giddens, excuse me. And we got to shout out the editor as well, Jim Clark, who does these amazing, like, mini montages, he called them. These long crossfades and superimposed images that make just truly unsettling moments. So many dissolves, beautiful dissolves. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big dissolves guy. I always notice them. I love them. I Again, it's a whole thing of, like, being cinematic. You can only do a dissolve in a movie. And, you know, there's always that moment when the two images are perfectly half and half, and it's always unsettling. And I think the, the favorite dissolve sequence is her, like, nightmare that she has. Right. Very just, like... You don't know what's real. You don't know what's her imagination. I mean, just like with the whole movie, it's all these things are just really just crashing into each other, and it's quite disturbing. Yeah, and there's as many as, like, four things happening at once, like, being (laughs) incorporated into the same frame. It's really just done incredibly well. There are also some similarities to fellow haunted house lady arriving there and discovering that her sexual repression makes her ripe for falling victim to them. Uh, the Haunting from 1963 uh, by Robert Wise and previous best horror movie ever made. So there you go. Check that out as well if this movie strikes your fancy people out there. And the final scene, which uh, certainly is uh, interpreted in a few different ways, earned the movie an X certificate on its initial release in England and an enduring reputation as a pretty disturbing depiction of repressed sexuality. A bunch of people weren't thrilled with the inter- like the emphasis on the fact that it could go just like into psychosis as opposed to real ghosts. And so there was a bit of a mixed reaction when it first came out, but there was a large contingent that loved it as well. And that has only continued to grow as it has become, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the actual movie. The opening itself is incredible. I don't think that I have ever seen as long of a black screen 
with just sound happening even before the production cards and everything and it's this friggin creepy kid singing oh willow whaley to you and and you know finally a bird chirps as deborah kerr's name fades in on the black screen and the title and you go oh shit this is actually like not just a card (laughs) this is something that's being filmed here again sort of using the depth of darkness in this shadow and two hands in prayer enter the frame with the sound of crying and Deborah's face enters frame two, Miss Giddens, and she looks uh, one quarter profile into camera and we hear her prayer here where she says she wants to save some children, not destroy them because she loves kids. And this, in my opinion, does a really great job of, you know, we, we don't know we have nothing to base a uh, suspicion on her yet. I think this does a great job of sort of being like, oh, this is a nice lady. Like she's uh, in such stress about helping some kids that she's, uh, you know, in prayer over here. <laughs> yeah. The specific kids reference though, are Miles and Flora, and they need someone to whom they can really belong. Miss Gidden says, because we then meet the handsome man she was governing for, And he's like, uh, this is Michael Redgrave, by the way, who is really great in this one scene that he appears in. And he says, I'm too busy fucking my way across Europe to deal with small children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's so good in the scene in that, like, that one scene, I think, carries over the entire movie, right? Like, it's a a shadow over the whole movie. And anytime there's this, like, any kind of stress in the film, it's always like, is this something we could bother the uncle about? Yeah. I mean, you need someone of his stature, right? I mean, he's, like, one of the greatest actors, of course, patriarch of this film family. And, um, yeah, you need someone of that kind of demeanor to, you know, really take it home. Yeah, he's incredibly charming in this scene. And he tells her, I need you to take care of my niece and nephew and Bly. He repeats the line about how important it is to have affection, someone to whom they can belong and whom can uh, who can belong to them. And, you know, of course, this is something that people say about falling in love as well. So this appeals to uh, the sort of romantic in Miss Giddens, who we also learn a bit about here. She's the daughter of a country parson, and this will be her first position as a governess. The uncle says Flora really liked the old governess, Miss Jessel. But she died, and it kind of fucked her up. Okay, no givebacks. They're your problem now. And she gazes at the hand that he just held. You know, there's she's clearly smitten. And I love the way this is communicated through suggestive blocking, despite the dialogue being about the children and about the job. You know, she's clearly much more focused on him. And, and again, that sort of physical performance from Deborah Kerr, I think, just really shines here. Beautiful countryside as she rides up to the gate, and in fact, she gets out early so that she can walk and take it in, and we get these amazing shots of the house across the lake that, you know, take on a much more imposing feeling when you revisit and understand where it where it's going to go. But it's also interesting how the camera kind of peeks through the bushes and over trees, like we in, are also some kind of specter looming over here. There is a sound of someone saying Flora, though, and it is very creepy. And this is sort of the first bit of evidence that this is real, in my opinion, because she doesn't know anything about the ghosts yet. And no one else says that they heard Flora's name being called. So maybe she really heard a ghost over there. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But Miss Giddens does run into the uh, aforementioned Flora waiting for her with Rupert the tortoise, 
classic Rupert. There's also a swan. Several swans, in fact. Flora says she didn't hear anyone calling her name, but everyone is stoked Miss Giddens is there. And so she brushes past it. And Miss Gross is the housekeeper who'd been chaperoning Flora in the interim, and she welcomes Miss Giddens in. This is the second bit of creepiness, and I think it kind of flies under the radar, but it really, like, spoke to me as creepy, is the uh, touching of a bunch of fresh-looking flowers and a bunch of the petals, like, fall off in her hands. And Miss Gross says, oh, it happens all the time. And you're just like, oh, great, death pervades this house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. There's so much, like, life in, like, flora, fauna in this house, but it's all very... Literally, flora. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> but there's something so, like, disturbing about it, where it's like, as you're saying, like it's like the death of the petals or really like kind of like scary insects or you know things like that that are just kind of like creeping and crawling all over and it's this idea of that death is just like there like there's just like a presence there right and i also thought it was an interesting choice of words for them to describe flora here as angelic already this sort of unattainable bar is being set for these children yeah and the house is mostly locked up but still quite beautiful miles is away at school but returning soon according to flora and the other residents are Anna and the cook. Miss Giddens inquires about the children's uncle, like we said, having found him quite charming. And Miss Gross says, He always was popular, but what's good in being popular down here with the children and the pigeons and me? <laughs> really funny line. She also says that Miss Jessel wasn't nearly as pretty as Miss Giddens, who smiles in delight at the compliment, though her back is turned. You know, there's a lot of her really being susceptible to flattery in this movie. I think that based on her upbringing, she probably didn't get a lot of uh, uh, compliments from a stern country chaplain father, you know, who was like, you can't play games because I'm writing my uh, sermons over here. Yeah, that and also she probably doesn't have a lot of like gentleman callers. Sure, especially if she's an older, older woman, you know, at this time working as a governess, certainly so. Now, something is amiss, though. Because Miss Gross says he had the devil's own eye about someone in response to he seems to like them young and pretty, but she scrambles to cover it up and say that she was referring to the master of the house. There's nobody else. Nobody. Uh, Meanwhile, Miss Giddens describes how easily she gets carried away, and in fact, that's what happened in London. And one of the things that she said in the opening scene is that she's like, oh yeah, I have an imagination, and uh, that's how that's part of what appeals to her or to to the uncle ab- about her because only people with imagination can ever really understand the truth. And she's here talking about, how, so she has an imagination. She's talking here about how she gets swept up in things easily. You know, they're really laying the groundwork for the unreliable narration of it all. Yeah. Now, Flora, this kid is revealing her freakness. <laughs> she's like, Rooms get bigger at night. I always look in the dark. You're just like, what are you doing, Flora? Uh, She also asks after praying, if I'm not good, and I might not be, (laughs) what what happens when you die? (laughs) Does God just leave you here to walk around? Talking about a goddamn ghost. It just makes you wonder, like, this poor girl has no friends, nothing to do. Yeah. Like, I'm surprised she isn't even crazier than she really seems. Very good point. Yeah, she really is pretty much totally solo there. What's the point of being popular with just Miss Gross and uh, right. and the pigeons? Yeah. 
about. This repression element starts to come into play as well here. There's an animal cry out the window, and when Miss Giddens is like, what the heck was that? Flora goes, Miss Gross says that we have to just pretend we don't hear it, and if we pretend hard enough, we won't imagine stuff anymore. <laughs> that seems healthy. But sometimes one can't help imagining things, Miss Giddens says. Also interesting, again, like I said, because Miss Giddens specifically was asked if she had an imagination, and only those can understand the truth. So it's all really coming together there. Flora and Miss Giddens are sharing a room, and Flora creepily watches her sleep, <laughs> then, then hums the song from the beginning out the window at a bunch of statues, and suddenly she smiles at something down there, which was genuinely, like, a really scary scene to me, when <laughs> she just, like, smiles at something off screen, and you're like, uh-oh. It's the kind of scene where you expect them to cut to what she's looking at, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they don't, and that just it makes you really... It's, just, it's jarring, but it kind of ends with that. Yeah. Style. Yeah, really jarring. It totally it baits you into your imagination running wild. The next day, Miss Giddens receives some letters, including one from Flora's uncle. She's very eager to read it, something that Flora points out as well, again, reinforcing the, her, her interest in him. And he's not coming to visit, though. He forwarded a letter from Miles' school, uh, and Miles is, a, a, in fact, a little rascal, and he got kicked out. And Miss Giddens is curious how Flora knew that he was coming home, but Flora is completely engrossed in a spider eating a butterfly. Probably nothing symbolic there, right? <laughs> she discusses it with Miss Gross instead. Miss Gross is kind of portrayed as a bit of a, like, country mouse type. You know, she doesn't know how to read, and it feels very easy to understand how she could also get swept up in the hysteria of of miss giddens i think that she is really doing a lot to provide a foil for her in a really interesting way especially as someone who's not like directly antagonizing her yeah i think that they both kind of represent opposite sides of kind of the situation which is like mrs gross is very much about like repressing like repressing things and like not talking about anything unpleasant you know she like won't hear anything negative about these kids right and Miss Giddens is kind of like, we need to figure out the truth. <laughs> like, what's happening? Yeah. There's also, a gr- I mean, it's a great shot of them. Just this, like, chained up statue between them. And these statues are really kind of a, an omnipresent thing. You know, they're constantly leering at, at them and in the background of shots and out of windows and everything. It's a really, really great uh, touch to have them just everywhere. You know, it's no wonder she feels like she's being watched. This is also where Miss Giddens starts to worry that Miles is a corrupting influence based on the letter describing him as an injury to others. <laughs> That's pretty harsh for uh, an 11-year-old. <laughs> and and Miss Gross says, Miss Giddens, are you afraid he'll corrupt you? Which certainly um, becomes an uncomfortable reminder uh, as things do take that sort of precocious, flirtatious uh, tone later on. But Miles arrives off the train and he has brought her flowers, which does assuage her fears a bit, uh, though they are also pretty wilted. So that death does extend to him as well. And he is a charmer, though. You know, he. I, I love the spin the camera does when he greets Mrs. Gross. Uh, just a really nice thing that doesn't ever come back. There. I mean, it is an active camera, but nothing like this wild spin that happens. Miles seems to be more upset by their uncle than Flora. I love this derisive imitation he does of him as, Don't bother me, I'm very busy. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he correctly identifies that their uncle feels he doesn't have time to care about them. And he says, it's sad when people don't have time for you. And you, you, again, sort of understand that these kids have really been through a lot. You know, they're basically completely isolated. Both of their parents have died. They're living completely alone with this uncle who doesn't has actively said, I don't give a shit about them. <laughs> it's not a it's not a fun situation to be in. He cries when Miss Giddens tries to ask him about school and gain his trust, but suddenly the wind blows out the candle and slams shut the window, and he's back to, don't worry, my dear, uh, again, very adult, as opposed to the crying child that was there mere moments ago. It uh, cuts to a dewy flower, which, again, I'm sure there's no metaphorical implications there. And I love when Miss Giddens peeks past the lush roses to see this fucked up statue ripping two hands out of the ground and a beetle crawling from its mouth. It's shocking. Yeah, it's a really quite a bizarre setup in this house. Yeah. Now, uh, this is described in the screenplay as a spoiled Cupid, which I found very interesting. Obviously, that can be representative of the twisted love between Quint and Miss Jessel, but also, of course, of Miss Giddens' sexual frustration. Giddens sees someone atop the parapets, and, and you know, they're on the tower, but the sun is in her eyes and she can't really see. And when she approaches, the person is gone and a, and a dove flies across the screen. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Obviously, a dove represents purity a lot of the time, but they also do some like fun surrealism here where the singing and basically all noise stops momentarily as she steps forward and then comes back in when she's shattered from her focus. Really spectacular stuff. She walks up the steps to the sound of buzzing bees, which, uh, you know, these steps are very vertigo, speaking of uh, Hitchcock. And up there playing with the birds is Miles, who says that he's been there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, who knows, again, playing with this ambiguity. And he didn't see anyone else, so she shakes it off, uh, as well as the fact that the children both know she hasn't been sleeping well. And she, you know, she's making all kinds of noises and stuff in her sleep. But back in the house, the children are both drawing. A uh, funny classic kid thing where Flora is like, look, look, I can draw too. And you go, yes, dear, very nice vase and flowers. And she's like, no, it's a thunderstorm. <laughs> this actually in and of itself is kind of an interesting comparison that she thought it was flowers, this beautiful and pure thing, but it's actually a thunderstorm, tempestuous and dark. Miles says that he wants to be a boy at Bly forever, which is interesting, but also I feel like kind of a reversal of what a lot of kids normally want. I feel like kids usually want to grow up very quickly. And it's interesting that for someone who has been forced to grow up very quickly, that he uh, is instead seeking sort of a, a retreat to childhood here. They ask her about her childhood, which sounds pretty repressive as well. Uh, her father, like I said, was always preparing the sermons and he needed quiet, but also they lived in a very tiny house with no real privacy. You know, she said that there was enough of them to play hide and seek. So if there's not a lot of privacy, it certainly feels like maybe what happened with uh, Miles and Flora potentially walking in on people having sex might have happened to uh, uh, Miss Giddens here as well and uh, yeah. shaped sort of her. Uh, sexual uh, drive and yeah, yeah yeah dysfunction yes good word the kids they say great we'll do this too we'll play hide and seek before bed 
But while seeking them, she sees a woman quickly glide behind a curtain. But she isn't able to investigate because the children call her name. And great shot here as well as she heads up the stairs. In the attic is a freak-ass clown bobblehead that I hate with every inch of my soul. Oh my god, it was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) But also there is a music box that gets knocked over. Inside is, uh, it's, it's called a glass, I, they say. It, it looks kind of like a locket, but without the locket part. It's just like a photo in a, like a, a glass thing. And it's cracked, which is, of course, also very uh, indicative of, of what's going on and the yeah. uh, impurity. But she gazes at that while the music plays. And later she'll describe this man as both uh, very handsome and also obscene. You know, it's 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 an interesting shot of her here just, like, staring at the picture. And she's startled out of this by Miles, who jumps out and puts her in a sick headlock, brother. <laughs> she can't get out, and he won't let her go, despite her pleas that he's hurting her, until Flora comes in. And she said, well, first, yeah, okay, there's a lot going on. First of all, she says, wow, you found it. I guess Miss Gross had hid it up here. Okay, your turn to hide. So, first of all, Miss Gross clearly is freaked out by what's going on and instead of dealing with it just put this music box up in the attic so that's thing number one uh thing number two is that there is the uh abusive relationship between miss jessel and quint is also sometimes theorized to be more akin to bdsm as opposed to strictly actual abuse you know she talks about how she was so in love with him still and and she would look like she desired the weight of his hand or whatever yeah and this sort of putting her like feeling like he's they're both getting some enjoyment out of him putting her in this position feels like it's it's sort of tied into that yeah it really sets up this the, the central kind of question of the movie is that like are these kids being possessed to sort of reenact this relationship, such as, you know, whether it was abusive or, or BDSM, I, I don't know, I, I, I tend to kind of flip-flop every time I watch this movie about kind of, like, what that relationship was like, and yeah. I think one of the great things about this movie is that we don't really see that, and I, I think that's sort of, like, the, like, one of the major differences between this and Bly Manor is that, it, with Bly Manor being, like, a, I think those eight episodes or six episodes. Something like, like that. You know, you have that time to explore that, but I think not ha- having that ambiguity really sells sort of this like unsettling, you know, uncertainty in, in the film. Yeah, and uh, I think you know the scene with you know with Miles, you know, kind of choking her, or having her in that like r- you know wrestling headlock. <laughs> It's it's really it's it's really quite something because it it's really comes out of nowhere, right? Like he just he doesn't seem like a very violent child. Yeah, and he I don't think he even really seems like he knows what he's doing, right? It doesn't seem like he. It seems like when a kid like accidentally like you know, hits you somewhere or is like choking you, it's like not even on purpose. It's just like they don't know their own strength, right? right. And, of course, the final and most important question that this raises is, do these children know the rules of hide-and-seek, considering they both emerge unprompted? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, you know, that's really the major, the major ambiguity of the film, right? It's, yeah. Okay, I don't like hide-and-seek, and it's Sucks. because of situations like this. <laughs> You know, like, hide-and-seek is always scary. Yeah. Yeah, look, I'm not a huge fan of hide-and-seek either, because 
the best thing that happens is you just sit by yourself for a long time. Right. <laughs> right. That sucks. Fuck that. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Giddens, is, it's her turn to hide now, though, and so she hides behind a curtain. First of all, it's kind of funny to just imagine trying to hide in that giant-ass hoop dress that she's wearing. <laughs> right, right. Her options are limited. <laughs> but second, she's replicating what we just saw the other woman do by kind of passing and gliding behind this uh, this curtain to hide. And thirdly, there's another statue over her shoulder, again, always watching on and looking in, in pain. But it's not just a statue back there. Because she looks over her shoulder once again, and it's a face, the same one from the cracked glass, a scary one, and she's sure it's the same man from the tower, and it slowly draws back into the darkness. And this is so effective to me. This this face drawing back into the darkness is done so well, and obviously the ambiguity of, we just saw a statue over her shoulder. <laughs> is it possible that she's seeing that and imagining it being the face of this man that she just saw. I think that pretty much everything that's happening in this scene is 1,000% working for me. Yeah, the casting of that of that actor is really on point because he looks handsome and obscene. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but when I see that guy, I'm like, okay, that guy's handsome and he's obscene. <laughs> yeah, oh man, it's like, um, what's that guy who, he, he played the voice of Black Phillip in The Witch, and he is just so handsome, but you're also like, that guy was the devil. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw this in... in your researcher but they had that actor on like a, a he was like gliding right like he wasn't walking he was mm-hmm. like on on something that with wheels and i thought that was really effective because it's some it feels very otherworldly you know does it, it feels it's like so way, smooth it feels like a, yeah it's, it's so smooth and again like this is like what i'm they could have done it where he just like pops into the frame but the <laughs> fact that he like fades in and out it's so scary because it's like um, it, it reminds me of uh, It Follows, because it's just that idea of just, like, it's coming. Like, it's not that it's going to pop out, but that, like, it's it's coming, it's there, and you're just, like, frozen because you're seeing something. It's, like, because you can see it clear as day, it's, like, almost scarier. Yeah. Because it's, like, it's just, it's there. It's the same thing with the statues, right? It's, like, the, it's a presence. It's this idea that, like, you're actually on their turf. Yeah, I love I love that they feel like they can take their time. Yeah, <laughs> like that's exactly. very scary. Right. She discusses this with Mrs. Gross, who says it's the uncle's valet, uh, Peter Quint. But don't you see? He's dead, and the children laugh from upstairs while the music box plays. <laughs> very uh, classic creepy children stuff. It's uh, yeah. it's very fun. And one thing to mention is that the children already kind of seem to be master manipulators where first of all it feels like maybe it runs in the family a little bit because we certainly see the uncle uh playing this up to his advantage to uh get miss giddens to to take the position but also like i said they've had to grow up quickly and so they we've seen them get out of talking about anything that they don't want to talk about miles is a flatterer and here in the kitchen not kitchen here in the classroom we see Flora begging, as Miles puts it, first for attention, then for affection. 
she says that she's distressed, that she can't go out to the garden, uh, and so Miss Giddens lets them go pretend to have a costume party instead. Put it out of your mind. Pretend it was just a dream, says Mrs. Gross, while Miss Giddens laments the ghost. And it cracks me up when Giddens is like, how could I have described him so accurately? And Gross is like, you just told me that you saw a picture of him. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it's that unreliable narrator, right? It's, you know, because she saw the picture and then she saw him, it puts it in, in our mind that she's not, she's not seeing what she thinks she's seeing. Definitely. And Quint, it turns out, died drunk and falling on the icy stairs. And Miles was the one who found him, and of course that was his father figure, she reveals, because he was the the masculine presence around the house. And uh, Gross says that it had to be an accident, even though Quint had made some enemies. The kids, though, arrive with the music box again, and quite dressed up in a crown and a uh, sewing needle pad. Uh, But Miles recites this poem about loneliness after someone dies, and then the guy is uh, a damn ghost chasing the POV. Uh, It's a really fun, spooky poem, but there's also a longing in it, a desire for reunion at any cost, even if they're a ghost, which is reflective of how the children feel about their parents, about Quint and Jessel, uh, who replaced their parents. Um, I think that it's it's a really well-done moment. Yeah. Giddens is like, oh my God, Miles knows. <laughs> and then Flora leans in the picture of devious innocence and says, knows what, dear? The the children acting grown up pretty much amuses me every single time. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they call people like dear. Yeah. You know, it's very, it's very amusing. That's another really great dissolve too. It's mm-hmm. like on her question and not showing how they answer that is really effective. Yeah, I agree. Gross says that Quint was unstoppable in his rule of the house, and he she implies that he was seeing Miss Jessel, who changed when he got there. Flora reveals a bit more of her psychopathy the next day, though, as she almost drowns Rupert in the lake. That was a fucked up scene. <laughs> and she also tells Giddens that Miles once saw a hand at the bottom of the lake. She starts humming and is hummed back at by a lady out there in the reeds, but the lady vanishes when Giddens asks who the heck that is, and Flora just stares at her. Again, this ambiguity, questioning whether Flora is staring at her like that because she's like, ha-ha, crazy that there was a ghost there, right? Or staring at her like, what the fuck are you talking about? There was nothing there, I was just humming. <laughs> These kids have a really amazing ability to have completely blank expressions like that, <laughs> Yeah, where you can't really tell what they're thinking. Yeah. Or they just cherubic. kind of look at you. Yeah, cherubic. And they kind of have that, like, angelic slash devilish smile. And you're kind of like, okay, but you're not giving me anything. <laughs> Gross finds Giddens shook as hell and tries to play it off again. But Giddens is like, there are two of these abominations. And really great moment because, of course, this could be talking about the two spirits or it could be talking about the two children. Really fun moment. And she says, I know that that was Miss Jessel there in black. She thinks the kids are in on it. Maybe it's just a game to them, but it's secretive and whispery and indecent. Gross does believe her, but doesn't know how to help. So Giddens says, what do they want? And this is where we get some more of the backstory here. She says, Jessel was in love with Quint. 
a fever that burns out the body and left her desperate for his affection despite his cruelty. She also says that they frigged like rabbits, using the empty rooms like they were the dark woods and didn't care who saw. Now this, um, first of all, the uncle's saying that uh, what he was doing is not the type of amusement one shares with children definitely takes on a new hue here. But additionally, this description of the house as the dark woods, I think is really powerful and does sort of capture what Giddens has been feeling this whole time. This this unfamiliar environment, the looming faces, the darkness. It's a really powerful moment. But when Quint died, Jessel mourned so hard that she died of a broken heart. Gross says, too many whispers in this house. Giddens has truly gone off the rails now, and she's like, I know that Quint corrupted Miles, and they've been deceiving us <laughs> before being like, all right, time to go hear their prayers. <laughs> this sort of switching back and forth that she does as well is interesting, the same way that the way uh, that the children switching back and forth is interesting. This is where we get that amazing dream sequence. Things fade in and out. It looks really fantastic. The children whisper to each other about how they've got a secret, and they giggle and run off. And Rupert is there with a sick flower crown and a few other great images, including Jessel and Flora dancing with Quint and Miles entering the room. Uh, and then a bunch more of those innocent and pure doves flying around. It's really funny to think back, like, oh, 30 minutes ago, when Giddens was like, these kids are angels and I love them. <laughs> and then have it be reflected by this, too. They are calculating liars, corrupted by ghosts, constantly scheming to bring them closer and the downfall of the house. <laughs> I know. She really flip-flopped there. It's like they're 11. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, this is we can also see her sexual repression having turned her on them. They saw sex at a young age and thus were tainted. They're no longer the innocents. Yeah. She wants to get the uncle to come back but says, I know he'll think this is just some trick to get him to notice me, which is another moment where you're like, um, no one suggested that. So her own sort of dysfunctionality emerging here, telling on herself, so to speak. And Gross finally reveals that Jessel drowned herself in the lake, and Giddens notices Flora leaving flowers for Jessel, too. And, and the Christian upbringing that she has, of course, uh, suicide would be looked uh, looked at as very sinful, very taboo. And so that only makes it even worse that, that this person is a corrupting influence on Flora, that she uh, might drag her down that same sinful path. And so Giddens decides that she can't leave, she won't leave, because Jessel was in the classroom and spoke to her after Giddens heard her crying and found her in the classroom, leaving a tear on the chalkboard. Now, obviously, this could have been anything, a small leak, considering how much rain we've been getting in the movie, right. her own tear based on how fucked up her own sleeping has been and what's been going on with her emotionally. But she's convinced that the children are possessed by the two ghosts who are using them to be together, and she has to get Miles and Flora to admit it so Quint and Jessel can be cast out. But until then, they can't let the kids out of their sight. And it's so funny to me that she's just like, I know how to fix this. They just have to admit that it's happening. She really is <laughs> jumping to a conclusion. And I think it's even a an assumption from her that these... Okay, look, let's say the ghosts are real. And they're trying to possess the kids. I think it's really an assumption to even say, like, they're trying to possess it so they can, like, continue their relationship beyond the grave. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they just want to live forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um... I, I I think, like, 
you know, her. there's something about this house that really unlocked her repression, and maybe it's this idea of, like, this house being this, like, sex sex castle, <laughs> where apparently people are doing it all over. Yeah. And so it's sort of this, like, jealousy or this sort of, like, longing for that kind of, like, sexual expression. Yeah, has liberation. really been, like, unlocked. Yeah, liberation unlocked. And now, but instead of, but her reaction is to exercise it out. You know, it's quite fascinating, I think. Yeah, I think, again, this kind of ties into her Christian upbringing, where the idea of confession being the first step to forgiveness sort of stuff, uh, I think, is certainly uh, overflowing into this uh, view of the children here. Mm -hmm. That night, she is reading the Bible by the fire. (laughs) Perfect place to doze off and imagine hearing ghosts have sex, in my opinion. But she gets up, and or maybe she gets up, and she continues to hear Quint and Jessel, who are being walked in on by the children. And this just looks so amazing as she's wandering this giant empty house, like, pulling on doors that won't open and stuff. Uh, Really, uh, first of all, feeling frustrated, obviously. But then also, I think it just, like, aesthetically looks fantastic. This is the scariest scene in the movie for me. You know, the excellent use of sound design and the candles and the camera work and how it's just you just really don't know where you're where you're going and it ends on that incredible or one of the ending parts is like that close-up of that really scary statue yeah scream and i think i mentioned mentioned this to you when we were first chatting like i can't fall asleep without the tv on and partly because of this movie because like when i first saw this movie i was living in an apartment building that was really creaky and you could hear everything in the hallways and not even on my floor, but the floor above me. Mm-hmm. And so I watch this movie and I'm trying to sleep and I'm hearing people walking and talking and I'm like, I'm so scared. <laughs> <laughs> and I started, I, I remember I watched Family Guy to help me fall asleep. Cause I was like, okay, this is a comedy. Uh, you know, it's fine. I'll, I'll live. And then I, th- I just created that habit. And now it's like, I can't sleep when it's too quiet because like, if there's any kind of noise, I think about this movie, and I get freaked out, and I need to, like, have... It's just, like, it, when it's too quiet, it freaks me out, you know? Definitely. It's it's very freaky. I think that it does a really great job of putting you in her shoes in this yeah. moment and, and creating that empathetic fear. You know, when she gets overwhelmed and scared by what's going on, we're like, yeah, get the fuck out of there, lady. <laughs> And, and even some of the dialogue that she hears is very, it's a little unsettling. You know, like the repeated love me. Yeah. You know, kind of ties back into that, like, abusive, you know, toxic relationship where yeah. the children are watching and all the laughing. Where first it's like the children are watching, we need to stop. Then it's like the children are watching and we're laughing. Yeah. You know, I would love to just, like, watch that scene and just really try to hear all the different things that are being said and all the different intonations and the repetitions. And again, it's like, we don't know if she's imagining this in the, like, or if this is actually like the ghost just like kind of taunting her. Right. Way. Yeah. It looks great. It sounds great. The candles are burning low, like you said. But when she flees to her own room, she discovers Flora isn't in bed. She's staring out the window, watching Miles walk in the garden. And he looks above her at the parapet, so she looks too, but doesn't see anything. And Flora just smirks at her doll while Giddens continues to degrade here. <laughs> Miles, though, tells her that he was acting out for attention, and she finds a dead dove under his pillow with a snapped neck, and he says, oh yeah, that's a bummer, huh? Okay, time for a smooch, and he plants one right on her lips, 
to her shock and frazzlement. And it's kind of a shock for me, too. And it makes me kind of wonder not only if they were seeing these these two, the, the couple have sex together, but also maybe if there was some kind of molestation happening from Quint to Miles here, if this is what he thinks an appropriate and normal way for children and adults to act together is. Yeah. It's, it's really, it just really gets under your skin. <laughs> the next day, Giddens goes to write the letter to the uncle as promised. Miles is unconcerned with her reporting his behavior, saying, be sure to give him my love, which is also very funny. (laughs) And there's another statue looming outside the window, and he's playing the song from the music box that Flora sings. Suddenly, and speaking of Flora, she has vanished. (laughs) This is the first appearance of a very cute cat that Gross is petting. I don't know why they have been holding out on us like this. But they run out to the lake, and Flora has taken the boat. All alone, that child? But she's not alone, and at such time, she's not a child. And it's like, wow. She's really full in on this theory here. You know, in the in the heat of the moment, Rose is just like, uh, okay, fine, let's go. <laughs> but uh, it is like, a that's a weird thing to say to someone. Yeah. Flora is dancing under a gazebo kind of thing that we've seen a few times here. And the wide-eyed Giddens approaching from the trees is so great-looking. She really looks crazed. And she stares across the water and sees Jessel. And it starts to pour. And Giddens confronts Flora, shaking this tiny child, yelling at her, demanding she admit that she can see the ghost. Yeah. This is another really great scene where it's like, oh, we've kind of crossed another threshold of where it's like, oh, she's like uh, getting really aggressive with them now. This this fear that she has is is really getting to her. Again, questioning that manipulation, though, because Flora says, oh, I'm frightened and starts to cry just as Miss Gross approaches. Crying is generous, though, because this is more of a scream. And indeed, it starts to sound like the crying of an animal that was mentioned at the beginning of the movie while Jessel continues to stare at Giddens. Uh, just very great stuff. Also, I did have to turn down the volume at this point. <laughs> oh my god, it was... It's, yeah, it's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> she heads back to the house, sitting by the fire, and is joined by Miles, who again sort of imitates her, pretends to be adult. He's undisturbed by the continued screams, however, and apparently uh, it has become filth, as described by Gross. Uh, you know, she's swearing and, and saying all kinds of nasty stuff. Uh, Gross, however, says that she didn't see Jessel either, and Giddens freaks out because, of course, she accuses Gross of being afraid when she got there because she felt that the two weren't really dead, and this could be interpreted as simply their memories lingered and cast a pallor over the house, and she was scared, didn't feel they were really dead, or she felt like they were actual ghosts. You know, it's kind of interpreted both ways. I think that this is where the sort of ambiguity of Gross's reaction really starts to rise. And I think it's it's really great, this sort of like, how far is she willing to go along with this idea that there are ghosts here? And as she starts to push back on it, the language that's used is like just vague enough to really be like, is she faking it and repressing right. it again? Um, just great stuff. All I want to do is save them, she says. So Gross has to take everyone away except Miles so Giddens can interrogate him. Um, 
That seems like a bad idea. (laughs) Gross warns her that waking a child from a nightmare can ultimately be worse. To be deprived suddenly and faced with shock. Hint, hint. (laughs) But Giddens won't hear it and tells Gross to tell the uncle the truth. And so she hesitates and says, yes, miss. She's going to go tell that uncle that this motherfucker is crazy. (laughs) But wait until you see Miles again to judge me, says Miss Giddens. Really a powerful line at the end of the movie. (laughs) And so so goes Gross with a giant slam of the door and a a body can only judge themselves, which is, you know, sort of an interesting rebuttal there. And neither Flora nor Gross look back at Giddens as they depart. You know, truly, they have moved beyond her. You know, they're they're just trying to get away. Yeah. Giddens wanders the grounds. She's surrounded by dozens of these statues again. You know, truly, uh, the ghosts are all that are there. These these historical figures that are are still present, uh, even in the in the present, still present in the present. Um, eventually, Miles does return, though. And they're going to have tea and talk like adults. Jolly nice. <laughs> the uh, featurette that I I watched on the cinematography, it was with uh, John Bailey, who mm. I, I believe is the president of the Academy and cinematographer. So he does a really cool breakdown of this scene and how it uses the, the wide frame to kind of have both of the actors on complete opposite sides of the frame and kind of keeping the... He mentions like the tea kettles always in between them as like the center of the frame, and you have these two opposing you know, forces. So I thought it was, it was interesting because you don't really—it's a kind of scene where you're not really sure if you notice cinematography, but you know, Freddie Francis I think does a really incredible job of even these scenes having very like dynamic camera work for just dialogue. Yeah, you know, I think that that having that something in the middle splitting the two forces has come up a few times. You know, I, I pointed yeah. out the one with Giddens and Gross, where there's yeah. the statue and chains between them right. and everything. Yeah. And it really does even subconsciously separate the two people mm-hmm. and, Absolutely. And, and draw them onto two different sides. I think it's really great. Miles has a really interesting dynamic where he is being, he is interested in being an adult in some ways, saying things like, oh, I feel quite the master of the house. I'm the man here and I'll protect you. But also... There are moments where he is childlike and innocent uh, when he slaps the jello. <laughs> he runs off when she asks him if he's actually happy, and the interrogation begins in earnest after she pursues him into the garden. My father taught me to love people and help them, even if they refused my help, even if it hurt them sometimes. That sounds bad. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you see that she wants to save them from her path, perhaps, but the cycles of violence and cycles of abuse persist, and and they cause their own ripples. And uh, it's it's a very sad moment here, where where you see the hurt that was done to her. There's also a nice little moment of vagary where Miles confesses to taking the letter because he wanted to see what she said about them, and of course, them could be him and Flora, or them could be the ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> She asks about the expulsion, and he says it's because I'm different, but eventually does admit to scaring the other boys because he cursed and hurt things, such as the dove, which we saw. And, of course, this uh, persists into Flora as well, as she almost murdered poor Rupert. And when she asks who taught him this behavior, he says, it just came into my head. You want me to admit it because you're scared, you're mad, and you're really just a hussy. (laughs) 
And we were never fooled by you, he says. Funny, funny word to call someone these days. A hussy. It made me laugh. But um, she sees Quint's face appear in the foggy, sweaty greenhouse glass, laughing along with Miles. And this is just such a perfect kind of encapsulation of what's going on here. This like, is he actually there? Is it his influence? And she's just projecting. You know, yeah. It's such a, a beautiful moment of it. Poor Rupert. Miles chucks him out the fucking window. This poor tortoise can't catch a break. <laughs> he runs as well, and she chases him, and he falls in front of a statue, which, by the way, of course, the slipping is reminiscent of Quint as well in his final moments. And she says, say his name and it will all be over. He's dead, Miles insists, but she insists right back, saying he's here now and for the last time. So finally he believes her, and he looks around for him, then suddenly stares back at her, calls her the devil, and collapses. <laughs> she lifts him up, saying, oh great, you're safe, you're free. But when she looks at his face, his eyes are actually open, and he's dead. <laughs> it's it's a, a really intense moment, you know? It, I, it's funny when you're like, you like forget the story that this is based on, and I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> But she gives him sort of a farewell kiss, and then her head falls out of frame, and her hands come up in supplication again as the end credits appear. First of all, lots of reversals here, like when he smooched her before, and also put her in a headlock that hurt her and wouldn't stop until he was interrupted. She hurt him, but there was no one to interrupt them. And yeah. so he's fucking dead. Yeah. This kiss is interesting, because of course there is the sort of culmination of the flirtation between the two of them that that could be happening here but it also kind of feels like a reverse sleeping beauty you know she kisses him farewell as he's now sleeping forever preserved in innocence there has also been um like i said that feeling throughout that that there was like an attraction there to his uncle and that maybe by his being so precocious and uh, advanced that she's kind of like replacing the uncle with him um and and it's just it's just all fucking wild clayton recalled i read this very funny quote he said that spiros scorus who was fox's president at the time called him every day for two solid weeks begging him to change the ending which i would not and did not do (laughs) i was like fuck yeah jack I think it's really great. I think that it's it's a really powerful ending. You know, when you think about her being like, wait until you see Miles again to judge me. And you think about like, well, what's next? Because it cuts here. And it's such a, a pit in your stomach of like, no, I need to see what actually happens. This is such a, a great cliffhanger of, of the story to keep your imagination working. Yeah. I, I think it's so powerful, such a great way to sort of close off what a, what's already been a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, the ending is so... Yeah, it's one of those endings where it leaves you with, like, a question mark or, like, a ellipsis, and you're just left to consider <laughs> what happens. And I like to think that the beginning, like, when she she's saying I wanted to save the children, not destroy them, I like to think that that was like from like what she says like right after he dies, like mm-hmm. right like right after the movie ends, it, it's like you know, it starts at the very end and kind of goes back just because like 
I can imagine she's trying to like rationalize to herself that like you know, her intentions were noble and in wanting to save them. Yeah. And she, you know, poor Flora. I mean, still probably still screaming to this day. <laughs> and you know, Miles is you know is dead, and I think she's trying to like convince herself that like she did what was she did what she had to do in order to save them. Definitely, and I also think that the sort of loop aspect of the film where it definitely does feel like the beginning could be sort of also the end does sort of reinforce that cycles of abuse thing that's been happening as well. Mm -hmm. And now Manish, we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. You know, I, I love this movie for so many reasons. One, it's this, this, the camera work is so striking just the way that the wide angles are used, the way that close-ups are used, the the lighting, the the blocking, you know, of the camera and of the actors. Everything's so carefully designed to really kind of shake you to your core. You know, th- there really isn't a moment in this film that doesn't try to make you question your own sanity, <laughs> you know, your own understanding of the story, you know, the characters and I, th- I think the performances, you know, by Deborah Carr and the, and the and the children are and Mrs. Gross, of course, are so just captivating and really highlight this this ambiguity. And I love this theme of this like sexual repression really coming up to the surface and you know either manifesting these spirits or causing some kind of like internal mental breakdown. You know and. And also the idea of, like, you hear kind of this, like, urban legend, right? She hears about this relationship between the uh, Miss Jessel and, and Peter Quint, and she just, like, it gets lodged into her brain, right? And, um, yeah, I, I think all that is really, really captured quite effectively by, by the filmmakers. And I think The Innocence, it's a really influential movie. Like, I saw The Shining in it. I saw Hereditary, as I mentioned. I saw a little bit of like Halloween too, or Elm Street, just like stories about these like women who are just trying to escape something and trying to do something, you know, trying to like solve their, their fear. I mean, it follows as well. Yeah. It follows like, Crimson Peak, of course, is a huge influence or is influenced that movie in a huge way. And, uh, I really wanted to uh, stick up for 1960s horror movies I feel like people who like horror movies kind of jump to the 70s and 80s, and I think the 60s are really potent. Um, you know, this movie, Repulsion, The Haunting, as you mentioned, Rosemary's Baby, Psycho, of course, The Birds, you know, Village of the Damned. Like, I think these are really interesting movies that kind of bridge the gap between sort of the, the post-war euphoria of the 50s and sort of the the new wave of the 70s. And you know, Martin Scorsese calls this one of the best horror movies ever made. And you know, who are we to disagree with him, right? He knows, <laughs> so he knows better than anyone. So <laughs> I'm really glad that this movie... Ha- I saw this movie in college, I think, for the first time. Or a little bit after college. But I read the we, I studied the book in college. And I'm so glad that this movie got a Criterion release. That it's out there. It was on Criterion Channel for a while. I'm sure it'll be back soon. So I'm really glad that it's getting an audience because I, I think it's it's really influential. It holds up really well. I think, you know, it's just so scary. I mean, I was watching it last night and I was scared. And I've seen this movie so many times. You know, <laughs> it, just, it just it gets under your skin because of that, like, the intimacy of its like, sort of empathetic heart where you're just so in this woman's brain, in this in her mindset that you really can't feel anything but terrified 
as she's going through these ordeals and trying to kind of reestablish some kind of stability in this really like uncertain and unsettling you know period of time that she's in. Yeah, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because somewhere along the way, people decided that old horror movies just couldn't be scary. (laughs) And I truly don't know where this came from because while it's true that maybe the gore isn't there and, you know, maybe it doesn't have jump scares like people might be used to, but because of that, they're instead forced to make you actually uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) And, And they really play with your emotions and, and, and your mind in a way that relying on jump scares simply cannot do. And I think that this is such a perfect representation of how that can be done effectively. It is gorgeous looking. We, I mean, we have gushed about the way this movie looks all over the place, but there are even things that I I didn't even really get a chance to slot in anywhere. We're like, yeah, it's it's it feels very intimate a lot of the times in that the there are a lot of close-ups, but also you'll notice that like Giddens like won't look at people. She like doesn't make a lot of eye contact with people. Yeah. And this idea of her always being like in the front of the frame and kind of like staring off into her own thing is just done so well. So many things that are not that don't have attention drawn to them, but they just exist confidently in a way that that really comes across and forces you to notice them without calling attention to it. The performance is outrageous. This lives and dies by Deborah Kerr, and thank God it lives, because she's so, so good in it. I literally, so I watched this movie twice, because I watched it while taking notes, and then I was like, this movie was so good that I just want to watch it again without taking notes just a vibe check yeah and i had even more fun with it the second time going through knowing exactly how things shake out and being able to look for all the little clues and all of the indications of her downfall it's so great everything about this is great it's it's so rare for an adaptation to exceed the source material and in my opinion this absolutely does it it reinforces the ambiguity while also creating uh, the scares that are present in the in the in the book novella whatever you want to call it and and the the way it's just all put together here is is unmatched it's the best horror movie ever made so there you go <laughs> There you go. Manish, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. Please tell the people where they can listen to your shows as well and and anything else you want to plug. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your podcast since I think the pandemic started. That's when I discovered it. And it's been such a joy listening to you and all your guests talk about these amazing... I've discovered so many things. I argued with you in my head when I didn't agree (laughs) Um, but I learned a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, wow, thank it's you. really, really a, a great, great listen. Really glad to have it in my podcast, you know, library uh, rotation. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at vertigay314. That's V-E-R-T-I-G-A-Y 314. Also, my podcast, It Pod to Be You, is slowly coming back from hiatus. You can follow that at It Pod to Be You, and that can be found pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. I also co-hosted Queer Now with my friend Dave Giannini, which is also a little bit on hiatus as we're both kind of pursuing other projects but the whole library is there for you um it's great you, you can find thank you you can find that at queer not pod and and also again anywhere 
you find your podcast. And yeah, M. Night Frights, it's on the EpatWU feed. So if you're interested in that, we go through every movie from The Sixth Sense up until old. It's his genre movies we wanted to focus on. So that's a really fun listen as well. So yeah, those are the main places to find me. Yeah, I, I like I said at the very beginning, Manish is a font of knowledge. Totally oh, check out uh, everything that uh, that he's working on because it's all great. In fact, I listened to the episode on old today, and boy, geez, I had just a, a wonderful time because oh, I I watched you. watched that movie again last night, and it turns out I still love it. So oh, so good, it gets better and better, honestly. <laughs> yeah, someone also pointed out that it's like kind of cube ish, and I was like, oh, it all clicks because I love Cube too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, great. So check all that stuff out. As far as my plugs, uh, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Letterboxd, Instagram, which I'm not really on that much, but you can you can check it out. There are sometimes things pop up on there. And, uh, and yeah, the Patreon as well, where you can find all kinds of fun bonus episodes, and we're trying to get more commentaries in there as well, get episodes early, all kinds of fun perks. And it's just a couple bucks a month, and it really helps because, uh, boy, I, I put a lot of work into this podcast. And, and uh, you know, so if you want to support it out there, sign up for the Patreon, uh, rate and review if you like the show. I always forget to plug the mailbag, and I'm not going to do that this time. So send in questions to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com if you have questions that you want to ask me uh, maybe you have also been arguing in your head with me and you'd like that <laughs> to not be in your head <laughs> well send in a question and uh, and I'll, I'll argue with you on air so um yeah that's that's it for me thanks everyone bye bye